You know, it, it's kind of risen to a level of kind of absurdity, Kafkaesque, tragic comedy. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Elizabeth Rosenthal writes about our broken healthcare system in her new book, An American Sickness How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. She says the system is in tatters and it's worse than we think. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Elizabeth Rosenthal was jogging near Columbia University one day when she fell and broke some bones. A group of students rushed over. One suggested calling an ambulance. I was hurt pretty badly and I was like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no. And these two very nice students walked me to St. Luke's Hospital. She figured hobbling to the hospital was cheaper than an ambulance ride. Personal experiences like this motivated her to write a book. She also heard alarming and frustrating stories from other Americans while writing about healthcare for the New York Times. Our healthcare system is comprised of hospitals, doctors, insurance companies, and drug manufacturers. In her book, she explains how social and financial incentives have infected this system, rendering it disastrous and immoral. How has Obamacare impacted the system, and what effect would a repeal have? Rosenthal serves as editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. She worked in emergency room medicine before becoming a full-time journalist. She's interviewed by Joanne Kennan, executive editor of Healthcare at Politico. Kennan refers to Rosenthal as Libby. Here's Kennan. You know, I told Libby that I didn't over-prepare because we, we know each other, we like each other, and we are going to sort of have the same kind of, kind of conversation that we would be having if we had lunch. And we actually started it in the other yeah. room, but I've got to now revive it here. Um, and I actually wanted to start with one very brief story that I didn't tell Libby about, and it is brief. I have a recently... Um, uh, he was an under 26. He was on my health insurance. He recently became over 26. He's on his own health insurance at a job. And he's constantly calling me, you know. And you can tell how exasperated or flummoxed he is because at 26, you don't usually start a phone call saying, Mommy! And that's what it always is. When it's, I know it's a health care crisis. And he's always calling me about this crazy bill or this happened or why did he get one bill from this and one bill from that and how does he find it? I haven't trained. How does he find out if they're a network and all, the, all these kinds of things. And, I, and he's always exasperated. He's always saying this. And I keep saying, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah, I know that. This is what I do. Yeah, I know it's crazy. And then reading Libby's book, it sort of, the, the conversation, the phone call, actually, that one was about car mechanics, not healthcare. But it, it drove me back to this, this conversation I've been having with him for six months about how crazy it is. And I kept, had been saying, well, yeah, I know, that's the way it is. It's crazy. And in the middle of her book, it sort of jarred me. It's crazy. <laughs> like, right. Why am I not saying, yes, Zach, go out and change it. Um, so yeah. I think that what the book does, and if you haven't read it, um, I think it works on two levels. It works if you, if you, um, you know, our president has now informed us that healthcare is complicated. So if you want to understand a lot of those complications, it's a really, it's a wonderful primer. It's a very easy to read um, description of this craziness that's um, that is our healthcare system. And if, like me, you know a lot of what's in the book, I still read it and. Um, 
there was this momentum of outrage that you would read, even things that are familiar to you, and you would read about the hospitals and the doctors and the drug companies and the devices, and, and it kept mounting into the point where you would like read it the night before bed and not be able to sleep because you were sort of, eh, that's the way it that is. That wasn't my should. intention. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, not that I, in my job I don't sleep anyway, don't worry right. about it. So, I mean, talk a little bit about how you, this outrage built up inside of you before you wrote this book. Sure. I mean, and part of it was I started as an ER doctor um, in the 90s, and this is, uh, I left, I'd done a lot of freelance writing at the time, uh, on the side at the time, and ironically, I left um, ER doctoring to work at the New York Times to cover something called the, the, um, the Clinton healthcare plan, because at that time, uh, healthcare was still working pretty well for people like me who had good insurance, but it wasn't working for the people I saw in the emergency room. So I thought, okay, I'll go to the Times, I'll write about this for a few years, and then probably this will pass and I'll go back to being a doctor. And of course, it didn't, I didn't, and here we are, um, you know, 20 years later, facing the same kinds of issues but on steroids to a point where I think we have a health system that doesn't work well for anyone anymore, right? I'm, I mean, and what was important in my my kind of coming to this book and coming back to the to healthcare reporting was I'd spent ten years overseas, and so I'd experienced a lot of other health systems. You know, I I broke a wrist in Stockholm, and you know, saw the fancy the fanciest orthopedist in Stockholm who you know had a little office and looked at my wrist, did an X-ray, casted it, and and apologized like insanely for charging me four hundred dollars. You know, so at, and so when I came back to the U.S. after um, ten years away. I knew healthcare had gotten really, really expensive, and um, as jo Joanne was saying, you know, what, well, what was the first ser what, the first article in your New York Times series, "Pain Till It Hurts," and I said, "Oh, it was colonoscopy," because I came back to the U.S. at fifty, and I was outraged because I went to a hospital that was in network, and I got the bill, and it was literally eleven thousand dollars, and. And, you know, and I saw everyone look at your colonoscopy bills. You'll be surprised. And I'm a wonk, so I looked at this. And then, you know, there was the happy note from my insurer saying that on my behalf, they'd argued it down to, like, $9,000. And, 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 you know, and I knew, like, this is really crazy. If we're paying $9,000 for colonoscopies, think of, we're going to be bankrupt pretty soon, right? And I knew in Europe you could get them for, like, $300. So, you know, um, so I went back to the Times, and when the Times, it was kind of the beginning of the ACA. I mean, I'd been with the Times the whole time, but not covering healthcare. Um, Dean Beckay, who's now the executive editor, said, will you cover the ACA? And I said, no, the only thing I want to do is write a series about why American healthcare costs so much. You know, that's, and, and I did. And he was, thankfully, he let me do that. Um, so I did this Pain Till It Hurts series. And then, um, and, and with each article, my outrage built because I came back to New York at a time where social media was, was becoming really um, usable for journalists. And after, it, with each article, we put a comment space and we got literally over 20,000 comments and all the stories were worse than I knew, worse than my 11, not all, but worse than my $11,000 colonoscopy. Or, you know, we would do a story about getting stitches in an ear where, we, where I knew of bills from, you know, 2000 to 
6000 and someone would write in sending me a bill saying, hey, look at this one for 45000 You know, So I, I, my outrage was building and building and building. And I was on the projects team at the Times. And you know, when they said, OK, you know, this was a great project, and you know, got a lot of readership, some awards, and time to move on to infrastructure, I was like, no, <laughs> you know, I have this bank of 20,000 stories. I understand, as often as, you know, all of us journalists know, you write something thinking you understand, and then you realize there are layers beneath it that go, that are even deeper because of all the responses you get. So um, I took all the stories, and many of them, I should say, were from physicians who were really distressed about the direction American medicine had taken, and um, said goodbye to the Times. I'm, I'm going to write a book. And I think the other thing for me was when you're doing a series, even a series that you're really, really proud of, you're picking off different pieces of the elephant that's American healthcare. And it became clear to me that they were all interrelated, that, that you know, the hospitals were few, the, the, the hospital's kind of um, entrepreneurial profit making mode was fueling the doctors, which was fueling the pharma. And, and you know, it was this kind of endless inflationary cycle. So what, what I tried to do in the book is to use all those stories. And I think one thing I learned as a journalist is if you write about health policy, a lot of people yawn. But if you write about people's stories, they see how it relates to them. And this does relate to them. And I, you know, my, my little soapbox is that uh, one of the things I think we saw in the last election was that people didn't understand how all this stuff going on in Washington and now don't understand, you know, this high-risk pool stuff, the, you know, per capita caps, how it affects them on the ground. And my point in using stories was to dig into our health system, system and make people understand that this is about their health, it's about their wallets. And um, I think we're seeing at town hall meetings now, people are kind of realizing that. But um, we've been slow to come there. So that's a long answer to yeah. But I think that um, one of the things we've been seeing over, over the last year, I mean, the, the ACA was incredibly complicated. And, and, the, and, the, and the repeal debate is complicated. But I think it's been interesting because what has really emerged is the dominant political story. And it's what you hear if, you, you know, if you're at a town hall or you you can actually stream some of them and watch one. It is the pre-existing conditions yeah. because every, you can understand. That's a fancy word for being sick, right? right. Um, or having a condition. Maybe you're not really sick, but you take medicine so you aren't sick. And, and I mean, is probably everybody in this room has a pre-existing condition, even if it's a mild one, or somebody in your family does. So that has become sort of this, this pivotal, I mean, every patient that you interviewed now has a pre-existing right. condition. So every, whatever problem they had going into your book, if you had the sequel, it would be worse. Right. right. So one of the things you talk about is um, how patient, I mean, it's an interesting book because the first half of the book is about this broken system. I mean, we can't call it a market, right? It's, it, you, that's the first page of your book, quoting right. some economists who said, this is not a market. Right. Um, we, we don't have transparency. We don't have quality. When we do have pricing information, we can't match it to quality. We don't know. We're lay people. We're scared of a disease. So you <laughs> and sort when of, the right. ambulance takes you, you can't, in most cities, you can't even say, I choose to right. go to this hospital. You have almost no choice. Well, one of my favorite factoids in your book was that ambulances 
until the, I memorized this one, yes. until the 1960s, half of American ambulances were run by mortuaries. Yep. Right, that's another conversation. Right. Um, <laughs> by what? Mortuaries. Uh, morticians. Morticians. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if it's better or worse now. I mean, now they're mostly run, many of them are run by um, venture capital firms. So is that same, maybe it's the same and, thing. And I think, right. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the the outrages to me, um, and things that I would, you know, people from outside the country look at look at some of our bills and some of the stories I tell them, and go like, why do you guys put up with this? This is ridiculous, you right. know. So you know, the fact that fire department ambulances um, or fire departments put out fires for free. But if some, if I get in a minor bike crash and someone calls an ambulance and I, now I don't, I, I, I go, no, I'm not getting in. But if I get in, um, you know, it, it could be a, two, will likely be a $2,000 charge that the fire department is, is charging me with a mileage charge, with a charge for the oxygen that they stuck in my nose that I don't need, with maybe even a charge for like a professional fee for the two paramedics who may be volunteers, you know. Um, it's just this crazy system. And plus, the last chapter, of course, because if you're a, a, a joint venture or a venture capital business guy, you go, well, why should we be in network? We can make more money out, out of network. network. So they're out of network, and I'm paying the bill. You know, it gets, it, it's kind of risen to a level of kind of absurdity, Kafkaesque, um, tragic comedy. So literally, like, I... I Wiped out. I think you saw me at this dinner last year. Where I had wiped out um, on jogging oh, yeah, and had all, like a huge <laughs> black, black eye and you know a broken bone. And and you know when I wiped out in front of Columbia University where I lived at the time, you know these students came running over and said, "Should we get an ambulance?" And I was hurt pretty badly. And I was like, "No, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no." And these two very nice students walked me to St. Luke's Hospital a few blocks away, but I think they thought I was insane. But so. I mean, if you think if you think the cost of an ambulance is bad, you should think about the poor rural people who have to take an air ambulance, yeah. which is a whole other can of worms. It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's conversation about our broken healthcare system features journalist and author Elizabeth Rosenthal. Rosenthal's book, An American Sickness, was released in April. She's a graduate of Harvard Medical School and briefly worked in a hospital emergency room before turning to journalism. She's interviewed by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Here's Kennan. Before we, um, we're going to open up to questions, but I, I just want to have one observation, and, and I mentioned it to Libby before, and didn't, we didn't have time to really talk about it. Um, we've been having a, a conversation about cost and coverage for a number of years. We passed the Affordable Care Act. We thought we had sort of begun to, not perfectly, but we had made huge progress in getting people covered. We had walked down the coverage path. We had done a little bit on cost. People disagree about how much, but we had done something on cost. And that that was sort of a thought like, you know, it was stage one coverage, stage two, we're going to go into cost. We're, 
But right now we're in a different conversation where we're, we're back talking about coverage and we're talking about cost in a much more narrow way. We're talking about the cost of premiums. We're not talking about the cost of health care. And in order to bring down the cost of premiums, this political solution that's being discussed is cover, have less in your plan, have fewer benefits, which means we're not talking about the whole bending the cost curve, which a lot of America didn't understand, but we're not even talking about the cost of care. We're talking about the cost of premiums, and we're talking about pay less, get less. So right. how do we connect that conversation back to the one that you're jumping up and down and screaming, you know, it's cost, <laughs> you know, it's the cost? Well, it, it is all connected in the end, and that's what I hope people will understand. I mean, part of the way we kind of got hoodwinked and kind of backed into this very, very expensive system is um, people were kind of looking at the wrong things. So we all were tuned, you know, because for many years we weren't paying premiums, our employer was paying, there, there weren't deductibles or co-payments. Our insurance pretty much covered everything for those of us who were lucky enough to have it 10 years ago. So we got focused on, okay, what's the premium, what's the premium? Um, and when we were just focused on that and insurance was just paying everything, you know, what does a business do? These are mostly for-profit businesses that are in our healthcare. They say, oh, the consumer doesn't feel this price, so we're just going to charge more. And, you know, that's where you see um, the prices going for, you know, if, if you, when my dad was a doctor, you, you couldn't charge more than, you know, 20 bucks for a doctor's visit because people were paying out of pocket. So once you get into everyone has insurance and insurance doesn't, um, and, and so we're all kind of like, oh, insurance, how many of us have heard that, you know, don't worry about it, what it costs, your insurer will cover it. And in that kind of way, and in that kind of time, we mostly didn't. And guess what? You know, people who are more entrepreneurial said, as economics would predict, if um, if they're not paying out of pocket, they don't feel it. So, you know, that $20 visit becomes 200 and maybe 2,000 in concierge care. And, and that happened in every part of the system with drugs. You know, we all said, oh, uh, generic drugs are cheap. Well, there's nothing inherently cheap about generic drugs. Um, and so entrepreneurial people in the generic drug field said, well, if they can do that with brand drugs, why don't we just raise the price and see what happens? And that's where you get, you know, Martin Shkreli's and the, you know, the the $100 doxycycline pills. Um, you know, it's, it's really crazy. And now what happens, of course, is that, um, so we're all looking at premiums and outraged at premium prices. And the current political narrative is how, does, how do we bring down premiums? But of course, what we're all experiencing, and this is where the on-the-ground on the ground experience is so important, is, yeah, my premium may be reasonable, but I now have a $5,000 deductible, or I have to pay you know, a $500 um, copayment for this medicine that I previously had a $20 copay for. So it's not just the premiums, and part of the, the second half of the book is like, okay, you have to shop. Where do you look? You don't just look at premiums. But I don't think people understand that. And I don't think our politicians, therefore, either understand it or want to understand it because they know the narrative is about how much premiums are going up. So you can solve that political narrative by saying, uh, sure, we're going to you know, do these plans that will lower premiums, but guess what? When people actually try and use them, what they're going to find out is the way you lower premiums is by 
raising deductibles or narrowing what you pay for or excluding certain conditions. And that's not going to be very satisfying, I predict, to a lot of patients when they go out there and try to use this new cheaper healthcare. Because it will, it will look cheaper from the outside, but it will be because we're paying it. You're paying it. Every one of us is paying it. And I think, you know, one of the false narratives that's been promoted in, um, in the, the medical world or the medical industry is that your insurers are on your side, right? They're in our corner. Like, we don't, we don't, think, about, we don't think that way. And we know we don't like the insurance industry. And, you know, Mark Bertolini is paid way too much. But we think, you know, I have good, I have coverage. They're going to fight for me. And it's like, you don't think that way about your car insurer. You don't think that way about your home insurer. I mean, basically, these companies are A, for-profit, which is unlike most insurance 50 years ago. And um, their primary constituents are their shareholders. And they're pass-throughs. So, you know, one, one insurance guy in the book says, they're not in your car. They're too big to care about you. You know, basically, they take in premiums and they pay out claims and if claims go up and they can't rise premiums, what are they going to do? They're not going to suck up the profit. They're going to pass it on, pass on those, those extra dollars to you. And we're seeing that in spades now. And I think um, so people are kind of going, well, you know, why are my premiums going up? Why are my deductibles going up? Ultimately, ultimately, that goes back to the prices we pay for all of those things. So if we're paying higher prices, even if your insurer is paying it, in the end, it just comes back to your wallet. And I think that's why we all have to be smarter. And that was part of why I, I, I felt like I really want to lay this out for people so they understand that even if you aren't paying it, we react to things that, you know, where we open up the wallet and pull out the credit card. But even if you're not paying for that 120000 hip replacement out of your pocket, we are paying it. Um, you know, when you walk into a hospital and say, oh, I love this place, you know, there's free coffee in the lobby and all private rooms and good art, you know, we are paying for that. You know, it doesn't feel like it, but that's why your premiums are going up and your deductibles and your co-payments, you know. So let's take audience questions because I can just go out and talk to her whenever I want, <laughs> right here in the red. In the I want to read your book, and yet I don't. I think I'm going to be too cynical, uh, too realistic. That said, not what are the three quickest fix, but what are the three most effective fixes, recognizing that we have a dysfunctional political system that can only adapt so much of what you're going to tell me. Yeah. I, I mean, the second half um, is about, like, so what can we do, right? And as I'm a journalist. I want to stay a journalist, as is Joanne. So I can't say, like, this is the answer. I have my preferences. So what I try and do in the second half of the book is to lay out, here are a menu of options. Because I think, you know, a lot of people look at this system and they have that reaction. Like, this is such a mess. You know, I have two kids who are just starting to deal with it, too. And they, you know, put these bills in the corner and just hide, you know. Um, but I think... You know, that's not going to work. That's not a good long-term solution because it will just get worse. So um, what I try and lay out is a menu of different solutions, which first for individuals, because I think part of this is, the, is that the more all of us just say, there's nothing I can do, it's hopeless, um, and write the check, um, 
it will just get worse because that's how we've gotten here uh, in the past. So, you know, at at an individual level, I think part of it is just asking those uncomfortable questions of your hospital, your doctor, and asserting your rights, your legal rights as a patient and as a person. Now, that's um, Joanne and I were talking, that's uncomfortable, right? To go into a hospital when you get that pile of consent forms and the one that says, I agree to pay everything that my insurer doesn't cover. I write in now, you know, so long as it's in my insurance network, you know. And if, you know, that's not going to have a great effect if it's just me doing it, but it will if, because I, I you know, I'm a pain. I, I argue these bills. They're even in the book. And this is, it's sad that it has come to this, but um, they're even kind of mad libs like letters that people can use to kind of protest your hospital bill. You know, these are the principles I'm invoking in order to say I'm not paying this. And I think the more, I, and I hate the word patient slash consumers push back, the less we'll see of this, you know, if this becomes a real, um, the way we interact with our health system. You know, one thing um, I would like to see, and it is not the answer, but it is, it will help get us to an answer, is much more price transparency. You know, you go to your doctor and you go to the hospital and say, what well, will it cost? Um, and they go, oh, you know, we don't know. And if you really push, they may say, as one, one person I interviewed, found relating to a pregnancy of between $5,000 and $45,000. Like, you know, that's not okay. So, um, you know, I think hospitals should show us their rack rates. Um, they should have to publish their master price list. Now, they, in California, they're required to do that. In other states, they aren't. And hospitals resist it fiercely. And they'll say, well, you know, nobody really pays that. Um, and when I, you say, well, why do you... Why do you ask those prices if nobody pays them? Well, first of all, it serves as the start of their negotiation. So, so you can get the bills, the happy bills that say, you know, we saved you 60% um, when it was 60% on a crazy price. The second, which one hospital had actually told me, is because sometimes someone comes in with a suitcase full of cash and does pay. Well, that's not a good reason. You know, when I go to a hospital, when I go to a hotel, I know what the rack rate is. I can. So again, not the final answer, but um, moving us in the right direction. In Australia, when you go into the hospital for a, an elective surgery, you get a binding estimate of what your cost is going to be, what the procedure will cost, and what your share will be. In France, there are prices on doctors' on, on, on doctor's offices. Now, I'm not saying that's a great solution, but it's a start because you know, even if we're not paying it. The place where I got my $11,000 colonoscopy wouldn't charge that if they had to put that on a price list in the lobby. It's embarrassing. They know it's not worth it. So, you know, transparency is one thing where I think we can, we can start. Um, I think some way to control um, pharmaceutical prices is really, really, really important. We've heard this from both parties. You know, every time there's a Martin Shkreli or EpiPen moment, there's like I call a, it my conflict of interest pen. Right. Like, I, carry, I carry it and I'm boosting. Right. I, I always say I have, a, I have a conflict of interest pen now at all times, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, so we would like, I would like, you know, people have talked about allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. You know, every other country has some way to negotiate drug prices in mass. We don't. Um, others, there's bipartisan bills that, you know, come up each year. It's uh, usually 
Klobuchar and McCain about allowing for, and now uh, Bernie Sanders is in on it too, allowing for controlled uh, drug imports from Canada. That would do it too. But that's you know? also been around for something like 15, yeah. 20 years. The, yeah. And I think, you know, maybe we won't see that pass, but I think the more people get fed up and the more they express their outrage, the more likely, because we don't pressure, our, you know, we at Kaiser Health News were looking um, during the presidential debates last year for some discussion of health care, on the ground health care issues. There really wasn't any. Um, it's only at these meetings afterwards. So I want people to become health care voters, you know, know what your congressman thinks about what are they actually going to do about controlling drug prices? Do they support Medicare? Um, and what you find is often, you know, there's a lot of, well, we've got to do something about this. And guess what? You know, who's their biggest constituent if they're from, for example, New Jersey? Um, it's, the, it's pharma, right? Um, there's a lot of lobbying that, that prevents some of these things from happening. So I want everyone to be a healthcare voter. Know who your insurance commissioner is in your state. Because um, that person can make these directories that are so inaccurate now, um, accurate next month if, if he or she wants to. Most of those insurance commissioners now are from the insurance industry. They sh and many of them are elected officials. They should be elected from consumer advocates, you know. Um, California is lucky they have a very activist insurance commissioner and as a result, even though he doesn't have a lot of power, he's had a very effective bully pulpit to, to move, make things better. So Now to run for higher office yeah. from, too. Yeah, yeah, he has ambitions here. Um, uh, my question has to do with the profit-making aspect of the hospitals and the insurance yeah. companies, and uh, sadly, I don't know how much Aetna and United Healthcare and Hospital X, what their profit is, but is that, would that be relevant politically? I, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sorry to... No, no, no. It's, it's um, you know, I, we've heard of um, some of the big insurers simultaneously pulling out of uh, exchanges um, saying, you know, they can't make money, and then, you know, the next day announcing record profits um, from other parts of their business. Right. So, um, you know, I'm just throwing out ideas. I'm not endorsing them. But could you say, for example, you know, you want to operate in our state? Well, then you got to operate in both the, the government and the private commercial insurance. You could do that. But these are, you know, these are, these are for-profit companies. So they're doing what they're supposed to do. Um, hospitals are a different issue and one that I think deserves a lot more attention. I mean, most of the hospitals in the United States are not-for-profit. Um, they don't pay taxes or pay minimal taxes in exchange for doing what's called um, charity care and community benefit. One of the things that the ACA did that I thought was, you know, as a policy person was really important was to say to all these hospitals, okay, show us, you know, show us what you're doing to deserve that big tax break. So the hospitals, and if you really want to be wonky, you can go get the, your local hospitals form 990 and look at Schedule H, and you'll see what they claim they're doing to deserve, um, you know, the tax breaks. Now, I think that's not gotten enough scrutiny because we've never said, well, how much do we expect to get from a hospital in exchange for that tax break? 
Um, you can look at what they say. You know, the charity care is a little a little easier to look at. The community benefit is is like pages and pages of little writing, but. Um, for many hospitals, you will find it not very satisfying. It's things like, you know, we let a farmer's market be take place on in an empty parking lot on Saturday. Um, that, to me, is not community benefit. So I think one of the things as voters we should ask our local politicians is to look hard at what these hospitals are giving us in exchange for their tax breaks. And if it's not enough, maybe it's more valuable to get the taxes than the this kind of notional community benefit. Um, a few, there's a mayor in New Jersey who just won that suit successfully. It's often extremely difficult, but the judge who was not a healthcare person looked at what the hospital said it was doing and he said, this isn't a charity. You know, this is like a big profit-making company. The other thing you'll find is um, because hospitals, by definition, are not, as nonprofits, are not allowed to make a profit. Um, so you can look at their operating surplus, which is often um, large and invested in things like building new wings and buying art. And, you know, again, we have to, as, as Americans, think what's valuable to us in a hospital? Is it all private rooms? Is it, I, and I don't want to dismiss that. I mean, I like having a private room when I'm in the hospital. But if you look at hospitals in Europe where healthcare costs are much cheaper, um, they look like high schools. You know, they are not fancy places. And I think we have to decide, are we willing to pay for hospitals that look like hotels or not? And that isn't to say that there aren't some hospitals who have what we call a, a um, bad payer mix you know, who, who treat a lot of Medicaid patients, a lot of poor and uninsured, aren't doing magnificent jobs against great odds and uh, really struggling. But, um, you know, someone said to me, well, you know, um, Apple Computers gives away a lot of computers, but that doesn't make them a charity. So I think, you know, we have to do a better job of sorting out what is a nonprofit hospital where it's truly nonprofit and where we feel like it's deserving its, its uh, tax break. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people tend to think that a, a nonprofit is mission driven and a for profit right. is for profit, right. when in fact it's really just their tax status right. and their board and some of their governance structures. It's, it's not necessarily a good or bad, it's, it's how they are set up. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that includes, um, as as you know, there's some very wealthy nonprofit hospitals. Yeah. yeah, and that includes a number of the um, some mm -hmm. of the most powerful hospital chains today are are some of the Catholic hospital chains who, um, you know, continue to invoke in their advertising this uh, the the sense of mission when, you know, meanwhile they have venture capital partnerships and. Uh, you probably have a lot it's more to say about this than I do. Yeah. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's show features two healthcare writers, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal and Joanne Kennan. If you like today's show, check out the episode, What Should You Be Eating to Live a Longer Life? To find the path to a long life and health, Dan Butner and his team study the world's blue zones, communities with elders who live to record-setting age. To find the show, search Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes.
Now back to today's episode. Here's Politico's Joanne Kennan. Question right over here. I wanted to ask you a question about private practitioners. We didn't talk about that. Sometimes it's easier to talk about hospitals. Private practitioners today are getting squeezed by the insurance companies. So they have several choices as they get squeezed. They have to make a living. Some of them go out and get rid of involvement in networks. They don't take insurance. Other of them have boutique practices. Right. Others who stay, the only what they can do is try to see more people in less and less time, which is terrible. Yeah. So I wanted to know what your recommendation is for the state of private medical care practice, which involves all of us. Yeah. No, well, many I, of them are also now staff. You know that yeah. they, they don't want to be solo practitioners or small group. Many of them are actually staff are affiliated in one way or another with working for a big healthcare system. Yeah. And I think this is this is the irony when we allow um, finance and markets to to govern how healthcare is delivered. Totally is that. Um, the the thing you know, patient, the thing that patients and doctors that always made that relationship powerful was the interaction and the time together and getting to know someone. And and most of our economic incentives that are driving healthcare and healthcare reform kind of move in, move us in a very different direction. They move in the logic of you know efficiency, revenue generation. You know, so. Often the person who's hurt the most by this, who I hear from, is the solo practitioner who's just trying to see the patients he or she has seen for years, trying to spend the time, doesn't want to order the tests, wants to figure out. Because what's the most efficient way to do it? It's to like order a bunch of tests before you've seen the patient, get the results back, and then say, oh, you know, take a med- take this pill. <laughs> you know, it's it's the most efficient form of medicine and the most profitable is not what most people say they want. And, and I think that's, that's a real challenge. You know, I hear from uh, longtime private practitioners who say that Medicare is now their best payer, you know, paying $50 a visit, which is not very good, um, because they're not in good bargaining. You know, today, medicine and how it's structured all depends on bargaining. What's your bargaining power? And individual doctors compared to insurers or hospital systems or device manufacturers or drug makers have no bargaining power. And, you know, I, I think they've, they've found different really imperfect solutions to that. Um, you know, some have gone to the boutique practices where they'll say to patients, okay, you're in my practice. Some are just pure concierge, but I hear more and more from patients who go to the doctor they've seen for a long time and now have discovered there's a membership fee, you know, like a $500 or $1,000 membership fee. And that makes people understandably uncomfortable. What does it mean? And the answer from the business manager is often, uh, you know, you'll, we'll return your calls you know, promptly, or, you know, you'll get, and and first of all, you wonder, well, if I don't pay the membership fee, can I still be in the practice, or am I going to get second-class care? And part of my, you know, now I sound like an old fogey doctor, is like, 
I'll go, yeah, returning calls and seeing patients in the hospital. Well, that's, that's what doctors do. That's the definition of being a good primary care doctor. But we don't have a business model for that, right? So if Medicare is only, or if the private insurers are only paying you 50 bucks, what can you do? So the, the other solution people have come up with is, you know, they join groups. Or, or even more problematic in many ways is they'll allow the hospital to buy their practice, right? Again, sounds like a good idea. And I think so much of it in healthcare, it's like, it sounds like a good idea. Because then the hospital comes in and it's very tempting, right? You know, don't worry, we'll do your billing, we'll take care of the finances, you know, we'll deal with insurance. Um, you just get to see patients. You just get to do what you do. And I get it. As a physician, I would probably jump at that at a first pass. But then what a number of physicians find is it's kind of a weird Faustian bargain because your patients who you're very committed to, suddenly your office is branded as hospital and the hospital and its billing is, charge, is charging a facility fee. Um, and your patients who, you know, maybe you like the radiologist down the street who you knew did a really good job for a reasonable price. Well, that's not okay because you're, now you're, you know, your hospital is part of, you know, um, you know, the, the St. Joe's. Joe's hospital system. <laughs> so you have to send your patient there for the x-rays and the blood work, which is, you know, literally instead of $7, $700 for the vitamin D test. So I've heard a lot of physicians who tried that and then ended up pulling out because they said, my patients were being ripped off and I didn't like that. You know, the, the good caring physician who thinks of him or herself, not as just a, a steward of your health, but also of your well-being in a general way. So I think, you know, I am seeing an interesting model where private practice doctors form into groups and try and negotiate collectively. And that's, that. I think we should support that and encourage that. Um, the problem is many of the players, because of consolidation in our system, are so huge compared to what, you know, even a group of 100 doctors could do that, uh, you know, it's, that doesn't always work out so well. That being said, you know, we do have to figure out a way to, uh, you know, we, we go, we've said this over and again, over again, you know, reimburse quality, reimburse um the things we say we want in medicine, we have to reimburse face time rather than procedure time, which we over-reimburse now. We can shift those reimbursement values. I mean, but again, you look at how reimbursement values are set in this country. They're set at something, you know, you were going to get really wonky, the relative the relative Ruck. value RUC, the Relative Value Update Commission, that's where doctors from a bunch of different specialties... But the a, high pay, it's dominated by high right. pay. Right, there's a fun chapter on this in the book where one doctor from the dermatologist called it um, 15 sharks in a tank with nothing to eat but each other. So, you know, every specialty society tries to get the most money. And, and you know, the, the, the primary care docs are kind of the, the little fish that's being eaten by everyone else. It's a very flawed rate-setting and value-setting system. And right somewhat now. secretive as well. And very secretive, right. yeah. Do you have a question right here? One of the outcomes I thought we had achieved with Obamacare was the perception that health was a right. 
do you, and I guess I'd like both of you to comment, since you each have expertise, do you think we're in danger of losing that? Joanne. Uh, without <laughs> disclose, I mean, I, I, can, I can just tell you that I don't think this country agreed, reached that conclusion. I think that one of the big, this is, I'm not talking about my own personal perceptions of this, but covering it, um, I, I don't think everybody in this country does believe it's a right. And I think that the whole fight over health care, that's one part of it. I think that the health care, the reason we can't stop fighting with health care is it's become such a powerful proxy for how do we feel about government. Yeah. Is, it, is it a right that the government does have to protect and enforce, or is it not a right? And is it not a government role, or is it a federal government role, or a state government role? So I think that people who support Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act tend to agree with you, probably have not talked to all of them. Um, and I think many of the people who oppose it do not think it's, um, maybe they don't, they may think it's some kind of a right, but not necessarily a right that the government should be enforcing. I don't think everybody, I know I've watched, I know I've watched focus groups and I've read polling data. Not everybody does think it's a right. So they think it's a right for very small children. Um, yeah. But, and I right. think, I think, I think so, oh, the ACA, and its struggles did move the needle slightly in that direction, if not, if not um, openly acknowledging it, the fact that these 20 million people who got insurance and are now poised perhaps to lose it, that's a real constituency that has come to think of um, healthcare is their right, at least, and many of them are in red states. So, so I, yeah, but so much of the conversation yeah. we're having right now is really about the exchanges, yeah. and this bill that went through the House has extraordinary changes to Medicaid. Yeah. And I mean, I've written about it, my staff has written about it, but it is not getting the same national attention. Pre-existing conditions is something that it is, it is easy for us to identify with. It's not complicated. There's no payment stream. You either have one or you don't, and we're all vulnerable. I mean, trying to explain, you know, entitlement spending and per capita caps and who, I mean, there's also a lot of public misperception about who's on Medicaid. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people think that if you're really poor, you get taken care of. That's not the case, or it wasn't the case. So, you know, that's sort of not what she's written about, but go home and read the, you know, go online and read about what's in Medicaid because that's also um, very pertinent to the, is healthcare right? Who is being taken care of? How are they being taken care of? And those are people who don't have the money to pay the kind of bills that, you know, 20,000 people, you know, emailed yeah. Libby. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. Her new book is An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. She's speaking with Joanne Kennan, executive editor of Healthcare at Politico. Their conversation is part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series at the Aspen Institute. Here's the rest of their talk. Right, um, I think you have your hand up for a very long time over there. Acknowledging that within the current political climate, our our health system can only change so much. The players aren't going to change in, in that type of thing, but also acknowledging that we're not really addressing the cost discussion. Um, do you think we can successfully see a shift away from pure fee-for-service, fee uh, rewarding quality outcomes, whether through value-based care and what we're seeing in Medicare? Do you think that's a successful way to address costs in the broader healthcare system? 
Well, I, I think, uh, you know, particularly what, with what we're seeing in Washington, I think uh, national, federally, nationally, we're, we're moving away from thinking about that. But I think um, one major constituency that has, to me, been really asleep at the wheel in this is the employers, who I think should be taking this on much more forcefully. I mean, uh, you know, when people say, well, why haven't I gotten a raise in the last 10 years? It's because your employer has been paying more and more and more for health care costs. And employers mostly, and, you know, I get, like, just like Joanne's son, um, you know, I get why employers look at these choices. You know, there used to be, there's some a story in the book about a university. They used to have one benefits person who would just decide on health insurance 20 years ago. Now there are layers of consultants who say you can choose choice A or choice B, and it's all so complicated they just choose, like, two of the cheaper ones and say, wow, I'm glad we don't have to deal with that again. But, you know, some of the large employers have huge market power, and they have huge market power locally where they can have an impact. So they're interesting ideas, one that I, you know, I'm fascinated by, something called reference pricing. Um, it's worked pretty amazingly where it's been used in California. Um, some big employers will say, okay, we're going to look at the state where we cover lives and, and where we have employees and say, what does it cost to get a reasonably priced hip replacement? And they'll come up with a number, you know, not independent health economists will figure this out, say, $35,000. And they'll say, okay, that's what we're going to pay to their, you know, to their, the insurer who mediates their, um, their health purchasing. And if you want to go to a place that costs more, you pay the difference. But if you want it covered by your insurance, you have to find a place that will do it for that. And guess what happens when a big employer says that? Not only do, do the employees shop for something that's covered, but all of these hospitals that were charging $100,000 go, oh, okay, we'll do it for that. You know, they, they lower their prices. So there are a lot of effective levers that big employers and unions can can pull if they feel motivated. And I, I think how to get them feel mo feeling motivated is a big question. I went to a, um, a presentation last, uh, a few, last week in New York from um, the Sustainable Business Council on Health, um, you know, who were behind putting out a movie about um, pharma pricing and the ripoff of pharma pricing. You know, I think they're starting to get more energized. So I think this this focus on how can we bundle care in that way, say we're gonna chart we're gonna pay thirty thousand dollars for this kind of care. And you doctors, pharma, device makers, hospitals, you duke it out about how you split up that money, but this is what we're gonna pay. Medicare did that, um, the center uh, um, in in the last administration there were a bunch of demonstration projects that worked pretty well. Um, our new HHS secretary um, does not like those. Many, right. um, mm -hmm. So I think he's he's put them on hold for the moment. Mm -hmm. But um, they've worked. Some, the ones that are underway didn't yeah. stop. They're they're yeah they're, they're cardiac. There's a cancer. There's a cardiac. There there's there were a few that he's put, right. put on hold. There won't be anything else mandatory. I mean, he won't do any more right. mandatory ones. He didn't rip up all the ones that are. But it was certainly an in, it's certainly an interesting and doable idea. And hey, if you take it to the extreme, you get to the HMO model, right, where everything is covered for a set fee for the year. Uh, you know, I, I know we always say that um, 
Americans don't like that. They want choice. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the part of the problem for me is certainly where I'm from in New York. HMOs got a really bad name in the 90s where they mostly did not deliver very good care. And so there's, there's a, a real lack of trust in that model in this country for the most part. The part of the, of the Affordable Care Act that we're not arguing about, believe it or not, there is a part. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot in there about um, the Center for Medicare and yeah. Medicaid Innovation. There, there's a lot of experimentation. Um, you know, it's, it's all very acronyming, you know, patient-centered medical homes, accountable care right. organizations. It's not so easy to know what quality is. And it also, as consumers, you can have price, inf- you know, say you have tri- price transparency. You don't necessarily know, do I go to the cheapest one or is... You know, do I want the cheapest MRI in the block, or do I want the most expensive MRI, or do I want, you know, Goldilocks? If you don't have the quality information, too, um, it's really it's hard, hard. As to, you know, if yeah. you're going to come away with Libby's book and say, I'm going to go out and be an informed, engaged consumer, and I'm going to negotiate and, and find out, it's really hard to even get the information. In addition to being, yeah. it's hard to do, but it's also hard to, to get Information yeah, and connected. This is why, though, I think, you know, when I speak to medical groups, I'm gonna, uh, employers need to step up to the plate. Physicians um, and, and young, I speak to, to medical students, I think, you know, they did not go into this to deal with prices and costs, and they mostly don't want to and don't like it, and I get that. But um, your doctor knows which radiology centers around his office or her office do a good job. So I think, it, unfortunately, um, I do say to my physician, uh, okay, if I need an x-ray, um, which do you know which place around here will do it for a reasonable price? If I call these radiology centers, they'll probably say, we can't tell you. But if my physician says, calls around, or he has his office manager call around, they probably will tell him or her. And I want him or her to say to the one that's charging a thousand bucks for a wrist X-ray, "I'm not going to refer my patients to you because I don't want them getting ripped off." You know, but that's a big ask for people who are already overburdened with a lot of tasks that are very uncentral to medicine. My uh, son uh, was paralyzed with Guillain-Barré for several years at age 11. My wife had breast cancer. By some miracle. We had a pediatrician when we were in Massachusetts who said, I'm closing my practice because I'm going to join a new thing called Harvard Community Health Plan. We followed him. If we hadn't, we would have been in a catastrophic situation because his illness cost well over a million dollars. My wife's cancer cost plenty too. I don't know. But somewhere along the line, Ted Kennedy was holding hearings in Washington, and we went to testify that every American should have the option of something like this. Every American should do its nonprofit, HMO. It was working fine. I now am part of a nonprofit HMO, you might know it, called Kaiser Permanente. It's the most popular health plan in the mid Atlantic region. You've been talking this whole time about the private insurance industry. That's not where the problem should be. We've just got to get rid of that. It's just well, I, terrible. I mean, why do we tinker with this rotten to private system when there are really good alternatives that could be supported? The best, most popular of which is Medicare. Yeah. It's by far the most popular health insurance scheme in the country. It's a single-payer system. It works. 
the, the Kaiser uh, system works, yeah. Cleveland Clinic works, Mayo works. Why are we tinkering with this busted system and even spending time talking about it? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a really important question. And, and you know, I, I will say um, when people say, oh, single payer, it's too radical, um, I do point out um, single payer, uh, Medicare is a single payer system. It's pretty, not that it doesn't have problems, but it is pretty popular. And um, it's the most popular. Right. And one thing that Hillary Clinton proposed at the very end, probably spurred on, I would guess, by Bernie Sanders, was um, lowering the Medicare age. And, you know, you could get from here to, to uh, you know, you could say we're going to lower the Medicare age, you know, by X years every few years. And guess what? In, you know, a couple of decades, we would all wake up and go, oh, my gosh, we have a single payer system. How did this happen? You know, so um, that's certainly, you know, yes, the HMO model, Medicare, um, these are all things that work where they're applied. And the, the question is, will, um, will the U.S. apply them? And, you know, I think the answer of why it's so hard to get there is that, you know, in other countries too, um, in Germany, there are a lot of sickness funds, the insurers, they're all by definition, by, they have to be not-for-profit. Now, as we've seen, not-for-profit in this country in healthcare can mean very lucrative, but not-for-profit. So, um, you know, why don't we take that profit motive out? That's a political question. And I think the question for all of us going forward, and uh, one of my reporters did a really nice story about this in the New York Times Sunday Review a few weeks ago, is that healthcare has become the job creator for America since the recession. And so any attempt to unravel it or go to a more cost-effective structure will involve, I mean, go to there's a chapter in the book about Pittsburgh. Go to Pittsburgh, go to Cleveland, where the steel mills have shut down. Healthcare has been the, the source and the fuel of the economy. So I think we do need to get this, um, you know, 20, nearly 20% 20 of our economy is crazy. I've spoken to too many people in the book who are paying 20 to 30% of their household income for insurance and minor healthcare costs. Um, people who move out of the U.S. because they have type 1 diabetes and cannot afford it even with good insurance. So it's a huge problem. We have to turn, my goal is not, you know, I would love it if we could get to, you know, French levels of spending or Canadians levels of spending tomorrow. But I think my goal right now is to start turning this ship around to move towards lower costs and I think we have to do that carefully so we don't end up with a terrible economic problem and jobs problem. It's already 18% of our economy. Yeah. I mean, we're spending 18% of the economy on, on, uh, on health care. Elizabeth Rosenthal practiced medicine in a New York City emergency room before turning to journalism. She then went on to report for the New York Times for more than two decades. Now she's editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. Her book, An American Sickness, was released in April. She spoke with Politico's Joanne Kennan. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. 
I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our Public Programs. Thanks for joining me.